If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 207, Power Play. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek. Then we talk about that episode, maybe some other things, sifting through for ideas and ideals which we can apply to our world today. This week, Power Play, the one where ghosts of a Federation ship lost 200 years ago take over the Enterprise. Or do they? Spoiler alert! Kind of. I've got Power Play trivia coming up, but first, a few words about a bunch of little starships. I have a question. How many flat surfaces are there in your office or residence? (laughs) Well, let's see. I'm looking right now. I'm looking right now. Uh, Yeah, two. Okay. Yeah, well, you and everybody listening might want to invest in a few more because the official Star Trek Starships collection is flying your way. Two. Count them two ships a month. Some federations, some from other civilizations. You get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe info about your ship. You'll get a digital download of the magazine so you can keep the magazine pristine. And you'll get all of that for 20 bucks per ship. Two ships a month, two magazines a month, two digital magazines a month, 40 bucks a month. Plus, you get extra surprises the longer you stay subscribed. And you can start your subscription at a crazy low price. You get the Enterprise 1701D, home to such wonderful characters as Wesley Crusher and Reg Barclay. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Jean-Luc Picard. Get the Enterprise D and its accompanying magazines for $4.95 to try out. Now, that's just to try it out. If you decide after the first ship, the first magazine, the other magazine, that it's not for you, you can cancel. But you're probably not gonna. (laughs) <laughs> that address to do all of this is st-starships.com slash mission log. st-starships.com slash mission log. Trying it out not only supports this show, it'll also get you a fleet of fun. That address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And a big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this edition of Mission Log. And let me say Mission Log a couple more times if I can, because I want to let people know how to get in touch with us. Is that okay with you, John? Uh, it's okay. You might want to drop in Booby Trap if you're saying Mission Log that many times, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. All right. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. 
Our show website, including discovered documents and all kinds of other fun stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. All right, Ken, I got trivia for Power Play. You ready? Yes, please. Brace yourself. Hit me. Today's show, Power Play, formerly known as The Invaders, which is kind of a generic title, uh, also the name of a 1960s TV show, a Quinn Martin production. And uh, this episode is also known as Terror in Ten Forward. More about that when I get around to it in a moment. Uh, but let's see. The story is credited to Paul Rubin. No, not Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens. This is Paul Rubin and Maurice Hurley. Now, Paul Rubin originally pitched the story. He's not a pro. This is his only professional writing credit. And, of course, we remember Maurice Hurley from seasons one and two as a producer and writer. So this should give you some indication that this script and this story had been kicked around for a bit and went through many hands. Now, what is less well-known is that Jerry Taylor actually wrote one of the early story drafts for this script. In her version, Troy, O'Brien, and Data, though at one point it was Worf rather than Data, were the three taken over, but Riker, Keiko, and Guinan would have been the hostages in 10 Forward. Uh, another interesting difference in that draft is that they weren't criminals, but actually the second of two electrical species at war on the planet. Also, there was more to do with Picard breaking down alliances between the three. And uh, let's see, Beverly would have been in command in that episode, and she would have cut off life support to 10 Forward in order to flesh out the aliens. So that's what brings us to the script, which is credited to Renee Bowser, Herbert J. Wright, and Brannon Braga. Now, Renee had the first pass at the script. It's his only Trek credit, but he had a very full career with Law & Order, pretty much all of them can name a version <laughs> of Law & Order, and he's got his hands in it somewhere, so don't feel bad for him. Um, Brannon really got the ball rolling, though, on the script. Michael Piller asked him to take the reins, and that version really wasn't going anywhere either. So Brandon did the fourth draft. Again, some interesting differences. Let's see. In his version, uh, Beverly had less to do since the transporter scans were actually looked at by Geordi, and Roe would have been one of the hostages in 10 Forward. Data would have had a stutter throughout, which was his tell that, you know, he was a bad guy. Um, it might have actually gotten the axe again, but Herbert J. Wright is credited on the fifth draft with Brannon. He had just come back to the show after a long absence, and he was asked to collaborate. Now, Herb Wright had been around before. He was a producer during season one, and we mentioned him again for writing The Last Outpost and The Battle. He came back as a producer for part of season five. Now, today's episode was directed by David Livingston. We mentioned David's directing debut with TNG with The Mind's Eye. Uh, otherwise, he was primarily a producer on the show. Now, let's see. We have a mention of a Daedalus-class starship, which is intriguing. I hope we get to see what one of those looks like one day. And we have a mention of the shuttlecraft Campbell, named after Joseph Campbell. And we have seatbelts in that shuttle, which was a smart thing to do since we had practical movement effects in that shuttle. We actually <laughs> put it up on lifts so you could move the thing around. Uh, it made me queasy watching it. Me too. No <laughs> question about it. <laughs> um, really exciting effect sequence, actually. A lot of effects at the top of the show. Um, we also have that shot that launched a thousand memes 
it is Data slamming his fist on the computer console. Now, famously, this shot in the original standard def version lets viewers see Brent's makeup streaks. He, he hits the console, and you see the makeup streak off of his hands onto the console. In the HD version, that has been corrected. Uh, let's see. Also, there is a computer screen with 4077 on it, like we had in Half a Life with uh, David Odgen Styers as a guest star. And uh, see, another weird little thing corrected in the HD version is the color of the TurboLift carpeting when we cut to the shot of three comm badges just laying there on the floor. The original floor in that shot was brown. It was corrected to red, like the actual set was, where they filmed the actors in that scene, so they corrected it back to red for the remastered version. Now, Marina did break her coccyx performing a stunt in this show. She was the only actor who did her own stunt for the scene in which the landing party is thrown back by the storm. She needn't have done it. You can't see anyone. (laughs) So, yeah, she took one for the team there. And let's talk about guest stars. Well, you really don't have any. I mean, on our show anyway, we don't really count Rosalind Shower, Michelle Forbes as guest stars since now they fall into that recurring characters category. Though, yes, they are in the credits as guest stars. Uh, we do have one guy, Ryan Reed, as a transporter technician. This is only his third out of four professional credits, uh, but this all makes sense. Last week was a bottle show, and other than the opening where you have the planet and the shuttlecraft, this is kind of uh, almost a bottle show, too. No need to dress it up with expensive guest actors. Settle in for a good, future-fashioned ghost story. Either that, or just another alien takeover. Prologue. The moon around Mabu 6 isn't just any moon. It's an M-class moon, and there happens to be a very old distress signal coming from there. Data identifies it as being from the USS Essex, a Daedalus-class ship lost about 200 years ago. She disappeared without a trace. But with that mystery solved and a terribly dangerous storm on the surface, Picard is ready to pack it up and get out of there. Until Deanna enters the bridge. She says she can feel the presence of life. Down there. Act 1. With the storm being too dangerous for transporters, a landing party of Deanna, Riker, and Data will have to take a shuttle to the surface. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your seat and tray tables in their full and upright position. Air sickness bags are somewhere. It's going to be very bumpy. Thrusters fail, and that little shuttle is going down. On the ground, the three are okay-ish. Riker has a broken arm. They'll try to do what they can to contact the Enterprise and look for survivors. A giant storm is coming through, crazy-looking thing, full of flashes of light and electromagnetic radiation. As it gets closer, Deanna says whoever is alive is coming their way with the storm. Back on the Enterprise, Jordy and O'Brien have a very risky idea. O'Brien will beam down with three pattern enhancers to try to get the others to beam back up with him. Before you can say, send the one who isn't the father of a newborn... Miles is on his way. When he reaches the surface, they get to work setting up the pattern enhancers. All three are in place, and as soon as it switches on, a bolt of lightning from the storm knocks everyone out. While unconscious, it appears that three little orbs of light zap their way into O'Brien, Deanna, and Data. Riker sort of stumbles up, activates the equipment, and then all four are beamed back up to the ship. Act 2. 
Waking up in sickbay, Deanna is stunned and almost terrified. She's assured that everyone else is okay, they just need time to rest. On the way to the bridge, new plans are formed. They might be able to adjust scanners to get a better look at the surface, but as Data is talking, his speech becomes distorted. No big deal. Certainly not a foreboding indication of things to come. Deanna asks to talk to Picard alone in his ready room. She's making a case for her very strong feeling that they should look in the southern polar region for survivors. Oddly enough, Data is telling Riker they should look in the same place, too. Riker disagrees, but Ensign Rowe realizes that they're moving into position over the South Pole anyway, and she's locked out of her computer. When Riker asks Data what's going on, well, Data knocks Riker to the floor. O'Brien pulls a phaser and Rowe hits the ground, too. Seeing an opportunity, Riker locks out the computer, and meanwhile, Deanna has knocked Picard out of the way. It's chaos on the bridge. The three mutineers escape into the turbo lift, but Riker has the chance to lock out the computer control from the bridge. Oh, and he locked out the turbo lift. What the hell just happened? Well, we will find out soon enough because the turbo lift has stopped, and with the force field set up, they aren't going anywhere. The security team goes there to find three com badges on the floor. The three have escaped somehow and are now on the run. More force fields are in place, but Data has a trick up his sleeve, his arm. He uses it to smash the computers in the corridor, breaking through the force fields, and now the three renegades find themselves in 10 forward. It gets ugly fast. Phasers are fired, crew members hit the ground, even Keiko is in there with the baby. You know, as you would be with a baby. Deanna, Miles, and Data are the clear winners here. Even Worf is down for the count at the end of Deanna's phaser. Act 3. Okay, so this is unusual behavior for three trusted members of the Enterprise crew. There's a hostage situation in 10 forward now, and they have locked out computer access. There's a force field around them, so the transporter can't be used to get them out. Picard calls Dr. Crusher to look at transporter logs. Maybe there's some clue as to why these three who beam back are now acting insane. Meanwhile, down in 10 forward, Deanna is trying to plot Picard's next move while Data is antagonizing Worf. He's all, come at me, bro. And Worf is all, I will come at you. And Deanna is like, ugh, knock it off. Picard is concerned about his crew. He asks Deanna if the people in there need medical attention, but she demands what was demanded earlier, that the ship be moved into orbit around the southern polar region. If they don't, then the hostages will be harmed. Picard has no choice. He orders the course changed slowly. It will buy them a little more time. And it looks like Beverly has some more information. The three who beamed up altered have some extra neural activity, anionic no less, almost as if another life form had superimposed itself on their brains. Riker wasn't affected, though, and it could have something to do with the fact that his arm was broken. The pain could have prevented the alien from taking hold. Come to think of it, Maybe pain would make those beings get out of Deanna, Data, and O'Brien. A plasma shock will do it. It's just a matter of getting an emitter close enough to hit all three. Roe and Jordy will work on that. And with that, Picard hands himself over as a hostage. It's a calculated move. He'll trade himself for those who need medical attention. And why not? They're already in control of the ship anyway. Intend forward... Keiko is trying to calm her crying baby. Miles, or, well, the thing inside Miles, isn't being very fatherly, but some of those scrambled neural patterns seem to recognize her at least a little bit. When Picard arrives, the force fields are dropped, and Deanna introduces herself. 
Captain Bryce Schumar of the Essex. Act 4. Inside Data is Commander Stephen Mullen, and inside O'Brien is Head of Security Morgan Kelly. Yeah, totally. The ghosts of these three people have been trapped ever since the Essex was lost in an electromagnetic storm 200 years ago. That's the story, and, and she's, well, he's sticking to it. So why taking over the Enterprise? The disembodied crew of the Essex just wants to rest. Above 10 forward, Roe and Geordi are getting into place. They drill through the ceiling and can monitor what's going on. Roe lines up a target area. She can make the shot as long as the three are close by. Once the shot is made, there's probably a way to contain the entities inside them. Dr. Crusher will work on that solution, probably with help from Dr. Spangler and Dr. Stance. It'll take time before all the pieces are in place. This gives Worf and Picard some time to talk. Worf is totally convinced that what he's seeing is spirit possession. It must be real. The Klingons have had legends of it forever. Picard says, yeah, that's great and everything, but no. If this was a Starfleet captain, then he wouldn't be behaving this badly. Miles, or the thing inhabiting Miles, is distracted again by Keiko. He's remembering something about giving her the bracelet she's wearing, but she's understandably freaked out and his aggressive stance, especially when he tries to force a kiss on her. Again, it takes Troy, Captain Schumar, to break it up. Picard asks where they're going and what they're going to do when they arrive. The ship is headed to the southern polar region, and it's where Troy says the Essex crashed. All they want is for the Enterprise to beam up their skeletal remains and return them to Earth for burial. Picard says, you know, I'll totally help you. I just need you to let some of the hostages go. After all, this isn't a very Starfleet thing of you to do anyway. Rather than seeing the logic in his request, they start threatening to kill hostages, starting with Worf and Keiko. About that time, Roe has the three lined up in her sight and fires just as Data walks away. Troy and Miles hit the ground in agony, but Data threatens to kill everyone in the room if Picard doesn't call off the rescue attempt. Picard notifies Riker, and Riker tells Roe and Geordi to return to the bridge. The little glowing entities that had left Troy and Miles for a moment then make their way back into their host bodies. Now Picard has no choice but to give in to their demands. Act 5. At the South Pole, there is no sign of the Essex, and yet here we are. Troy insists that they're in the right place and sends transporter coordinates to the bridge. Geordi says there's no trace of a ship, just more of that nasty storm. Riker calls back to 10 forward, and the three in charge insist that they have to use the transporter, even though it hasn't been working, and even though Chief O'Brien is the only one who could do it, and even though they will need a transporter pad. This puts him in a tough spot, but Picard has the upper hand. He offers to walk them to Cargo Bay 4, where they can use the transporter there, and he alerts Riker on the bridge as to their plan. All transporter controls will be transferred to 10 forward for now. Yes, all of them. Nice try. And then everyone will be allowed passage to Cargo Bay 4 because, you know, this might be an opportunity, in quotes, to end this siege. Time to move out. Troy takes Picard as a hostage, Data takes Worf, and O'Brien takes Keiko. The six walk through the corridors toward the cargo bay, and all is good. No interference from the Enterprise crew. In the cargo bay, Picard starts asking some more questions. What exactly will happen once the remains are beamed on board? And how will this make these spirits rest? How do they know? This line of questioning is a bit much for Troy, but Picard throws down the glove. 
Why don't you tell me who you really are, because you definitely are not Captain Schumar. As the transporter is being prepared, on the bridge, Geordi has set up a neutrino thingamajig to isolate the Hoosets. It might be what they need to isolate everyone there, but when it is discovered by Data and O'Brien, they will be out of time. Plan B? Well, Picard will likely blow the hatch and have everyone in the cargo bay blown out into space. And that's only if we need a plan B. Well, when the transporter is engaged, the violent glowing storm is beamed up, and it's time for Troy to confess in classic victorious bad guy tradition. All of these entities are the prisoners who were left behind on this moon 500 years ago. They almost escaped with the Essex, but here they are now on the Enterprise. About that time, Riker gives the order for Dr. Crusher to activate her containment field. The hundreds of beings in that swirling storm are captured. Immediately, Troy threatens to kill Picard. But what then? Picard, Keiko, and Worf all step up to say that they will die to protect the others on board the Enterprise. Game over. Picard orders the entities to leave the bodies of his crew, and they will all be returned to the planet's surface. With Troy, Data, and O'Brien back to their usual selves, Troy describes that it was as if their own personalities were pushed aside and they could only watch helplessly as the action was unfolding. The end. Do you mind if I correct you on one thing? Yeah, what what is it? Uh, Picard is not going to blow out the hatch. Well, he assumes that Riker being in charge will allow the hatch to be blown out. They're on the same page, at least. Well, they're very much on the same page, except that Riker actually tells Roe there's only one reason he would go to Cargo Bay 4. When I tell you, you need to be prepared to blow out the hatch. Because we learned that from disaster. Okay, but here's there are two things this raises for me. First of all, so Riker is not going to be the one to push the button, nor is Picard going to be the one to push the button. Riker's going to make the call, but Roe is actually going to have to push the button. Mm-hmm. Which has to be kind of weird for her because the whole reason she's still in Starfleet is because Picard has taken a real interest. Right, right. And so she's going to have to be prepared to kill him. But but the bigger question this raised for me, how do they get stuff into the other cargo bays? <laughs> do you have to bring like everything down the hall? Because that's all carpeting, man. And they're going to ruin oh. that perfectly good 1980s hotel carpeting. Oh, man. And the, oh, yeah, the carpeting unless the wallpaper. Unless they're beaming everything into each cargo bay, but then wouldn't each cargo bay have a transporter pad? See? Yeah, I got problems with the design of this ship. I'm thinking Daedalus hey. class may not be the worst thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because this, what are we on now? Constitution, galaxy? I can't remember. Galaxy class, right? We're, we're in the galaxy class. And, and really, actually, how much cargo room do you need mm-hmm. when you got a replicator in every room? Well, remember, the replicators, though, can't generate some or can't replicate some really complex things, right? Like they had some to take things. drugs yeah. one time. So yeah. what, you're just yeah. going to put that under your bed? No, that goes in the cargo <laughs> bay, especially because if it's like a whole colony. Here was right. another thing that really weirded me out. So they're like, oh, hey, it looks like that's that we think we know where the Essex is. And and mm-hmm. Picard's like, good, tell somebody we found the Essex. Let's get out of here. I mean, I understand it was stormy. <laughs> I get that. Right. But seriously, you're not going to like maybe take a look? It, it was really, really stormy. It was really stormy. I yeah. understand that. And look, I remember, look, what, what nearly happened to LQ Sonny Clemens? Weren't they just going to like shoot? 
the thing that they were on because it was old and dumb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe they weren't shooting it. No, that was actually Star Trek V when the Klingons were shooting <laughs> it. Was okay. the Klingons. But they were just going to leave it floating there. I mean, and here it was. It was like a 1996, 1997 piece of technology in the 24th century. And Riker's like, right. leave it. Who cares? That's the past. <laughs> we're the future. Let's move on. And so then they're like, oh, wow, this 200-year-old ship that nobody knew what happened to it. Should we look into it? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, good. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, Picard likes his old book. He does. His <laughs> one true. old book. That's true. And really, he's good. Yeah. After that, you know. The Essex crash there. Yes. No, if it had been the Triumph that crashed there, then I feel certain right. Picard would have wanted to have a look. Then. Yes. Then yes. Or, the, uh, yeah. or something of the escargot, maybe, mm. if it had been that. Mm-hmm. I'm having trouble thinking of French words right now. I don't know why. <laughs> well, no, escargot is good. No, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah, it really is. You a little butter. It is. Oh, delicious. sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Hey, I have a brand new ending for this episode. <laughs> so, and they, I, I kind of shortened the end because Troy has her moment, and then Miles and Keiko have their moment. They yeah. have to, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought really what happens is then they, they turn around, and then it's Captain's Log. We return the disembodied criminals to the moon surface, and somehow somebody, we didn't see it, accidentally bumped into a photon torpedo launch system just as we were leaving. (laughs) Oh, and the poor little Mm -hmm. sprites, the poor little family of Tinkerbells, criminal Tinkerbells. Criminal Tinkerbells. Didn't make it. Yeah, criminal Tinkerbells, by the way, is my cover band for something. It's my Spice Girls cover band. There. Oh, 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 that's so good. Yeah. 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 I, I really don't belong in the Spice Girls cover band. Hey, you had a problem a couple of weeks ago with what felt like the longest prologue in next-gen history, Mm -hmm. but this one is super short, and it sets up everything. Yeah. I mean, they're like, they are on it. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah, no, it was really really cool. It was really good. Really quick, really zippy. Yeah. I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, you mentioned uh, that, you know, we, we probably both felt like we would have been ill during that uh, that shuttlecraft scene. It was intense. It was a very intense scene. Yeah. And um, one thing I was thinking during that, not only was it horribly tense to watch that happen, it's one thing to glide down in an airplane that has lost engine power. I forget what the exact formula is, but it's something like if an airplane were to lose power, oh, man, it well, what, this is really interesting. It's really cool. All right. That it can actually glide down, and the altitude loss is something like 10 feet of altitude for every, like, 1,000 feet of distance. It's really it's a long way that an airplane can glide. So you got lots of time to think about it is what you're saying. Yeah, and that's a really cool thing. Okay, now what's horrifying is a oh, shuttlecraft man. that is aerodynamically very similar to a brick. Yeah, that's true. That is bad. Yeah. I will say you can tell the practical effects. I mean, it's great that they didn't have everybody. Okay, lean to the left, lean to the right, Mm -hmm. sit down, Mm -hmm. sit down, whatever. Um, I I feel like the whole thing was killed, though, when they flipped the camera. And I I don't know if they actually flipped the camera, if it was just an optical printer thing or a video optical printer or whatever. But I mean, it was like really harrowing until that we did the full, like, you know, 360, Mm -hmm. like spinning it all the way upside down. Then I was like, oh, you just totally took me out of it now. Right. Yeah. No, good point. Kind of a yeah. bummer that, but because yeah. the practical effect really was amazing, and seriously, I thought I would have thrown up on set. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> well, like I said, they, they did blow a, a huge amount of the budget on doing those effects and doing the, the practical shuttle effect and, and using their planet set. So even though, you know, you make up some of that by not having guest stars and then filming everything else on the standing sets, it's a really impressive first act. Yeah, <laughs> they is. get a it lot really of action in there. And big shout out to the exploding hatch on the shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> that that is just that thing flies across the set it was so cool every time something like that happens in a movie i think of fred ward as gus grissom shouting the hatch just blew it was a technical malfunction it just blew yeah he's great yeah, yeah. that was uh that was uh remo williams right <laughs> yeah he's so close <laughs> <laughs> Um, hey, I have a new idea for a thing. Okay. Um, go with me. So I'm thinking like an unmanned thing uh, that can maybe fly a little bit, maybe by remote control. Mm -hmm. And let's say you need it to go into a dangerous place to drop off equipment um, so you don't risk a person. So say it could drop off things like uh, transporter pattern buffers mm -hmm. or, or phasers or, or coffee. Let's let's go back to your man Gus Grissom for a second. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the thing mm -hmm. that happened in the movie, the right stuff, right yep. before the hatch blew, or he blew the hatch, or you know yep. whatever, uh, yep. was he parachuted down to Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking you don't even need a drone. Oh, <laughs> Just like man. make sure what you're dropping is heavy. Yeah, and then attach a parachute. <laughs> Just and give it good. a good push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good. you might actually have to, you know. Maybe a really good push, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just drop yeah. it out the Enterprise and hope for the best. No. Hey, who's the guy walking around in khakis? Mm, yeah. He's, he's in a corridor. Yes. Yeah. He's on his way uh, to work his ship to the Enterprise Blockbuster. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Or the Enterprise <laughs> Gap. <laughs> okay. I'm not good. sure which. Yeah. You know what? Really? It's the belt, right? Because mm, you're yeah, right. Yeah. He's in khakis yeah. and a shirt, but we've seen that before. It's the belt. It is. And I'm like, this is seriously just some guy who wandered on set. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It does. Yeah. It does a bit. One thing that I always liked about Next Gen is that e even though we've kind of taken them to task for the logic of having kids on board mm -hmm. or not, or, you know, do you do this? And it, and it was an argument that went on and on throughout the show. But the fact that you have families on board is something that we were always sort of promised is that you would see daily life in the 24th century. So you would expect the corridors to not just be full of people in uniform. You would expect people to be doing other things. Last week, there was a young woman who was in a swimsuit because she had just been swimming in the holodeck. And then if you go to school, there's kids and they're not in uniform. They're in kid clothes doing mm -hmm. kid things, you know. So I thought that was neat. But this stands out because it's like the only one that we Seen. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. the kids, you're right, they're in kids' clothes, but they're in space kids' clothes. Oh, space kids' clothes. Yeah, you talk about, you know, the, the space ice cream dish and the space spoon mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Even yeah. the people who are in their civvies are in their space civvies, right? Yeah. And yeah. that guy was wearing something that I pretty much could have been wearing at the same time. <laughs> yes. That's what makes that stand out so much. It's not just that he's the only one. It's that, seriously, he could have bought that outfit at Kmart. You could have. You might have. You they, they, might well, have. You know, actually. they did blow a lot of money on on uh, on the first act, as you say. They did. They may have been they like, did. "Yeah, we just we don't have the money for space pants for this one." Just <laughs> tell him to bring his own pants. Make sure they're pressed. Right. right. We'll give him a big old space belt. <laughs> um, man, it's some good acting in this episode, but but that snarl on Data's face. This was another fun one to go back and watch over and over mm -hmm. to just focus on particular performances of people who are in the background. 
Yeah. You know, um, there's some good camera work here. There's a nice shot where Worf and Picard are having a conversation and Ten Ford in the background. You've got Data hang, having a, a conversation with Troy. And even just their body language, they're kind of, you know, a little out of focus, but their body language, they're all worked up and you hear little bits and pieces of that conversation. It's just good. And man, Brent really chews the scenery. In this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Marina Sirtis is amazing in this episode as well. Oh, I man, think. is she good. She's yeah. so good. It is, not yeah. a, it is not a great Troy episode. It is a great Marina Sirtis episode, though. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it in the in the prologue. I couldn't help think of the uh, trailer because years and years and years and years and years ago, I worked in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. I think around the time that Sweet Home Alabama was coming out, mm. the Reese Witherspoon movie. I won't call it classics. I never even saw it, but there was this one part in the trailer <laughs> right. that we always loved. You've got a baby in a bar. <laughs> and that's right. it's like wow, really? Ten Ford. I'm beginning to wonder about Ten Ford. I used to think that would be the bar I'd want to go to. I might, yeah. I might just buy a bottle and take it back to my quarters. <laughs> like, right. Wow, right. You, you brought a baby. Um, I, I have a similar question for this episode that I had uh, last week, or, or really any time that our crew has taken over or has their brains messed with. Mm-hmm. How much do they remember? Mm. And, and, and how much control do they have? So does Data now remember how to be a horrible criminal? Does he erase that part of his memory or not? So what's interesting here is that the, the criminal personality is dominant. They, they do. Troy actually says it was like she was there watching it but couldn't do anything about it. Right. And, and Miles says he would have killed that part of him if it came to it. Um, yet they still know the, the criminals that are in there. They know how the Enterprise works. And the one inside Data knows how Data works, and, and he talks like Data, or at least he does a passable impression of him while on the turbo lift. So the the criminal beings that are in there, they, they actually are picking up a lot of knowledge from the beings that they're in. And I would assume then that they also picked up knowledge from the crew of the Essex, because mm-hmm. they're able to say things about the Essex. But then the the flip side of that, like I said, does Data, you know, somewhere down the road just go like, oh, hey, uh, remember that time that I was a horrible criminal keeping everybody hostage and I almost beat up Worf? Well, here's something I learned from that. Well, you know, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll apply that in this situation. I'm actually curious about, is there ever any mention of why they chose to make Data one of the people taken over instead of Worf? Because, I mean, look, it's a show about the 24th century. I understand that. But, but mm-hmm. one of the things that was actually troubling for me is how easily the entity was able to take over data right i would think there'd be some issue there with like yeah no this is a machine i mean could he just as easily then have taken over the computer of the enterprise and wouldn't that have been convenient yeah yeah actually that would have been much more convenient i would think that there would be i mean like like Riker being in pain was enough that they couldn't take his body over right but you can take over a robot Right. Or an android. I'm sorry. Right. I'm, I'm wondering why. I mean, is there anything in the in the notes that you saw or anything that you – is there any reason that it was Data instead of Worf? No. Interestingly, not, not anything that I saw in the notes, but in Jerry Taylor's draft, it just seemed that she – I don't know if it was a combination of two drafts, but it was just that at a certain point, it was no longer Data. It was Worf. Hmm. Or okay. – I'm sorry. Yeah. Or no longer yeah, Worf. Yeah. It was Data. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Kind of odd. Mm-hmm. I thought we learned some interesting things about uh, about the crew. Okay. 
end this episode. It's like, uh, so 10 Ford is full of people, including a baby, let's right. remember. Yes. And they're like, what do we do? It's like, oh, well, let's just stun everybody. Yeah. We'll, yeah we'll, we'll take care of them all later. It's like, <laughs> stun them all. We will know our own, you know, said Riker, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. I also thought it was really great that, um, that uh, when Crusher comes up with the whole thing, it's like, wow, so your arm was broken, so mm-hmm. you were in pain. Maybe if we if we you know make everybody in pain and Rose like oh yeah got this yeah, I know how to do right, that right oh I mean does anybody have any ideas about how we might <laughs> she was quick with that she was she was well, and speaking of Roe, it's a really good thing that she and Jordy were whispering in the Jeffrey's <laughs> tube. Right above, not even at Jeffrey's, but the crawl space right above 10 Ford, you know, so that the android with superhuman hearing wouldn't know that they were there. (laughs) Right. Well, again, it wasn't the android, though. It was somebody taking over the android. Who knows how an android works? Maybe Data was sitting there the whole time going, I can totally hear them, but I'm not going to tell him because it would be bad. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, what is wrong with that Jeffrey's tube, Jordy? Jordy's talking <laughs> smack about that tube, and I'm thinking, you know what? We should all be so lucky that the crawl spaces in our homes would be that clean and accessible yeah. and well organized yeah. and nicely lit. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, I had a question actually about. Um, it was actually one that you mentioned last week. So they they they're testing the weapons, right? Macduff's Macduff and Worf are testing the weapons, right? In uh, whatever conundrum, right? And 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 they like just fire off the phaser. And like, oh, well, hopefully that doesn't hit anything at some point. So she's got like this little uh, row has this little like laser drill. Right. And she's able to just drill right through and apparently yeah. not kill anybody beneath <laughs> <laughs> or not hit the floor or anything. Right. right it's just right. like, oh, it's just going to drill down just this because it's light. Yeah. Yeah. So they, okay. they, they call they call Riker like, OK, we're, we're through to 10 forward. Oh, oh. And it looks like we're also through to 11 forward. Exactly. And, and it's going to keep on going down to 12 forward. Couple decks down. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I could see her like actually stopping once it hits the carpet in 10 forward. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at that point, you've hit the carpet. Yeah. And even even the criminally insane data should be able to like, you smell something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a clever bit of uh, setup where uh, Miles yells, I gave you that. And he Mm -hmm. walks over to Keiko. And meanwhile, we've just heard nothing but crying baby every time we're in 10 forward. Right. Which is kind of hilarious. I gave you that. But he walks over and and he looks at the bracelet, not at the baby. Just a nice, funny little little bit that they have there and in what is actually kind of a terrifying scene <laughs> but you know it is uh, <laughs> it, it is a funny setup yes um also let's see this episode we learned that you can officially command the enterprise from a computer in 10 forward as it so, should be yep yeah yeah so the bartender can do that please and, breaker's not on the bridge he's in 10 forward so come on <laughs> that's a good point good point um, and, you know, I still wonder about Data because at the end of all of this, man, it is good to have him back again to the same old Data, the same old Data who so many times has had his conscience taken over and made to do terrible things and mm-hmm. almost kill his fellow crew members. Can we can we maybe start to look at some new protocols to help prevent that from happening? Because it just seems like as long as we have data on board, that that might keep happening. Maybe that answers why there aren't any other datas on any other ships, because it ends in disaster. The question, though, is who is going to order that, though? Because how many times has that happened to Picard? Mm-hmm. So really, is Picard going to be the one to... You're right, absolutely. I would say two times somebody's... Possess- 
let's say, 10 times somebody's possessed, <laughs> then we have to relieve them of duty. Because, right. you know, otherwise, Picard's like, you know, yeah, all right, I'm next. <laughs> all right. Best line in the show? At the uh, at the end, when uh, Worf and Data are having their little exchange, you know, we're kind of wrapping up everything with a bow, and uh, Data says to Worf uh, in that threatening scene, uh, regarding that threatening scene, your restraint was remarkable. Worf says, you have no idea. Worf has been getting all the good one-liners. Like a Holland Oats song, it is a case of possession obsession. Like a crowded house song, I feel possessed. I could do this all day. Actually, those are the only two I can think of. So every time I watched this episode, I kept expecting a different line from this one scene. Worf and Picard are talking over, you know, who the people are possessing them. Uh, or taking over, you know, Deanna and, and Data and Miles. And Worf says, spiritual possessions of this sort have been reported throughout Klingon history. It's called Jotlin, the taking of the living by the dead. And I just kept expecting Picard to say, yes, human history is full of crap, too. <laughs> I would have loved that. Yeah. I I, not that I think he would that. be that dismissive of what Worf had to say, but that seriously is what I kept well, expecting. It's, it, well, it's really funny because uh, Worf clearly is taking this very seriously. Yeah. And and Picard is doing what a good captain is doing. He, he's listening to the advice of his crew. Yes. And he just says, yes, okay, thank you for that. We're going to approach <laughs> this in a completely different way because yeah. I reject your premise. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. How can you outright reject the premise? I mean, you know, Star Trek, Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Right. I mean, it seemed to me that it was possible. I mean, just because we're kind of doing a horror story show at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so where we're going to draw the line. OK, so let me get this straight. You guys were alive. You were ripped from your bodies, but you can't possibly be these other people who were alive and ripped from their bodies. Because, I mean, remember, they actually said we were prisoners and then a thing happened and mm-hmm. now we just float around. So they yep. weren't energy beings when they got there. Right. So then why couldn't it have been, you know, uh, possession by these dead people? No, no, no. The dead are dead. These guys just never died. Well, right. But we we don't know what the other physicality was that those aliens had. You know, we, we don't know what it was. that. So that may very well be how those aliens live. They, they could be a, a distant cousin of the Q, for all we know. And they right. could appear and disappear with a flash of light. I mean, the, the point of, of, I think, Picard's skepticism, that really, that's kind of the big and the only really interesting kind of message here. Not even a message, but just sort of a central idea in this episode, hmm. is that, you know... As far as human understanding of the universe, there is the natural world, and there is the natural world. So this has a natural explanation. The natural explanation is that that's how those aliens live. Those aliens have a component to them, which is an electrical thing that moves around, and that thing could be studied, and that thing could be contained, and that thing could be moved from one place to another. And it has all these properties, has properties that can be studied. Mm. But... As far as human beings go, uh, human beings live and then they die. 
mm-hmm. and they don't come back because there's not another thing in them <laughs> that could be measured or studied or contained or in any other way attributed with properties. Okay, wait. Did, did I mention, though, the special planet with the special storm? <laughs> right. Yes, yes, we have a special planet with a yep. special storm. That, right. that, that's, that's what one might call uh, hand-waving. And uh, if you were to treat this as scientific reality, you would say, right. oh, no, no, but, but, but the rules don't apply to my thing because right. I'm waving my hands over here. Right. Yeah. What's the middle part? Then a miracle. <laughs> then a miracle happens. I mean, that's right. A, right then a miracle happens. So, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of had a feeling, and of course, I didn't read ahead on your notes, but I kind of had a feeling that this is where you were going to go with this. And I can understand why you would be inclined to, mm-hmm. except that I thought they told us that the prisoners were once physical beings who got separated from their physicality. And if that can happen to them, I mean, then you're obviously talking about some weird thing they didn't expect. Because, look, they can't just fly off the planet and go back to their planet without actual bodies, right? Well, they, well we, we don't know what all their properties are, but we do know that one of their properties is they can't fly through space, or at least they can't fly through space long enough to get back to their planet. They have to have, like, a, a host body of some sort. So not unlike um, the doomed romance between Beverly Crusher and, uh, and a slug that <laughs> lives inside a dude. <laughs> oh, know? really? That, you're going with that one? Because I thought you were yeah. going to go with the one with the, uh, with the person who dresses up uh, for the basketball games. Uh, you could go with that one too. Yeah, you, you, I can't remember. With, I cannot remember anything about that episode now. What was his name? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> I was going to try to remind people, but whatever. Look up the yeah. thing, and there'll be a do, and you'll understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, All right. So, so really, what yeah. you're seeing is the central message of this whole thing is no supernatural. There's natural, and there's natural, and we're done. I think there's a good lesson in skepticism in this episode. Okay. Worf, Worf is ready to believe in the spiritual possession because because he's inclined to do so, mm-hmm. because that is the mythology he was brought up with, and it fits the stories he has heard before. So right. he just comes to the conclusion before actually weighing out any evidence. Now, we're supposed to go with Picard on this. Picard does what we should do, is that he he takes in the claim— he, mm-hmm. he processes the claim, then he asks for an explanation, mm-hmm. and then he waits to see if the evidence fits the claim uh, mm-hmm. within that explanation. And uh, and in the end, it's great because he's heard enough, and, and he straight up asks, okay, all right, one last time now, what's the scientific basis for, for the claim <laughs> that your souls will rest, quote-unquote rest, the further away you get from the planet, because now you're just making up stuff. Right, you know? right. Um, and certainly their case is not helped by Diana going, shut up. Right, right. Yeah, I get that. Right. I understand what you're saying. It's just, I mean, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. Well, I, I do. I think this is an interesting thing. So I had all that uh, trivia about how this episode was developed and, and how many times it changed. Now, mm-hmm. knowing what I know about Brannon, and uh, first of all, I know that he's a big James Bond fan. So mm-hmm. it's not out of the question that he would do an episode like this. And I know that he's something of a, of a bit of a skeptic, too. But none of the ghost stuff or any other uh, the plot details about the Essex, none of that was in his draft. Uh, Herb Wright actually put all of that in uh, after he did his fifth draft of this. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit surprised to learn that. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes this episode interesting, because otherwise it is just... 
okay, you've got a, a being taking over part of the crew and they're going to do stuff with hostages and we got to get them out. And we either have to kill them or, or learn who they are. Now, in one of those drafts, um, they're not criminals. Like I said, they were uh, just one group of another group of kind of energy-ish beings. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of a civil war going on between those two groups. So once the Enterprise has those beings captured, Picard has to decide, like, look, you guys are on the losing end of this battle. That's why you wanted to get away. That's why you wanted to come to our ship and take over our people. But too bad, we're just going to send you back to the planet where you've got to fight it out with the other energy beings that you're having this fight with. How? So, yeah, right? Really? Not even an offer to, like, negotiate with them or anything? Nope. nope. You're kidding me. Well, I, nope. well, good that that was left out. Although, to be honest with you... I don't want to get into the part yet about whether this is a, whether, you know, we like the episode or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I did find a couple of problems in Act 5. Okay. Um, it's interesting that you say that, that um, uh, Braga is a James Bond villain. Mm-hmm. Because well, he's not a James Bond villain. I mean, James Bond Brandon's fan. actually I a apologize. TV producer. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. You, you say he's a James Bond fan because there is a total James Bond villain thing that happens in the end. The fake Captain Schumer, you know, tells Picard the whole story. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why he did that. <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't have done that. At the very least, he could have kept Picard guessing long enough yeah. to, you know, whatever. But, like, you know, if you're close enough to drop poison down a thread, you're close yeah. enough to put a bullet in his head. That's it. I mean, right. that's the thing. You don't you don't say, well, we're close enough to the finish line now. I'm going to stop and tell you. No. <laughs> Cross the finish line and then say now. Well, I'm just going to let you see what happens. How's that? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there was a bit of uh, yeah, a bit of over-explanation there in the in the classic James Bond bad guy bad guy tradition. And actually, there's a moment much earlier in the episode where we learn again why you should never announce what you're going to do before you do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So think about that scene. Uh, Ensign Rowe and Jordy are in the access hatch above ten forward, and he it, three things have to happen. Okay, you have to turn off the shields. Right. You have to make the shot, right. and then you have to turn on the containment field that, right. uh, uh, that, that Dr. Spengler and Dr. Stance have created. Okay. <laughs> right. So those three things have to happen, and Jordy tells us he's got seven seconds to do it. That's the window, right? right. <laughs> so he, he's ready to do it. All right, uh, Roe tells him they're in range, and he says, all right, I'm turning off the force field. And then she says— I'm preparing the plasma thing to make the shot at the guys who are all lined up where I need them. Mm -hmm. And in the time that she's explaining that, she could have taken the shot. Hey, forgive me, though. Aren't you missing a step as well? Didn't she tell Jordy and Jordy told Riker? Yes, because Riker had to tell Beverly to turn on the containment field or be ready with the containment field. (laughs) There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of announcement. And if you didn't have that announcement that takes at least like – what feels like five minutes, <laughs> but but is actually yeah. a few seconds. She, yeah, you, you don't announce that you're going to take the shot, just like you don't announce what your criminal intentions are. Okay, well, let yeah. me say the problem with what you're saying is then we would have ended the show in Act Three, but it might have actually been okay to end the show in Act Three because now we come to my second problem with Act Five. Okay, these these people who have taken over the Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Are these beings? They they've been left alive, or as close to alive as floating disembodied energy beings can be, uh, over the course of five hundred years. For five hundred years, right? They've been they they've been. I don't even think you call it in prison. 
at that point because Picard said, oh, so this is a penal colony. The guy's like, yeah, we've been here for like 500 years. Okay, it's not prison anymore. That's hell, or <laughs> right. or that's that's right. that's just absolute. That's not even um. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? That's not even like when you send somebody away. What is that called? When you send somebody away, <laughs> I, I I don't know because I've never done that. <sighs> no, I've, yeah, it's a, like yeah. a big. I uh, can't think of the word. Never mind. Okay. It's not okay. prison. Is my point. I mean, that, that's like forever. You've now basically left these people forever. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about that cruelty. But then let's talk about Picard's willingness to just leave them to float as disembodied beings for the rest of eternity. So, like, they've said, yeah, we were we were put here because it's a prison. Okay? So, mm-hmm. they're honest about the fact that they're there from prison. Right. But we don't know why. We don't know for how long. We don't even know if the people who imprisoned them are still alive. Right. right. Right? I mean, we don't know if they're being punished or if this is supposed to be a rehab or what it is. And granted, they should not have tried to take over the Enterprise. But I was amazed to find that, I mean, Picard's willingness to just turn his back on this whole thing from... What, the very beginning of the episode, I guess, from the prologue is amazing. It's like, hey, we found this 200-year-old ship. Oh, so what? Hey, there are hundreds of people trapped down here. Well, let's be sure and trap them real good this time. (laughs) Don't forget the cones, by the way. We're going to want to leave cones around this planet so this doesn't happen to anybody else. I Um, think Picard's – I think he's got a lot of information to go on, though. So we know that those criminals don't want to be dead. mm -hmm. And we know that they can only live by having host bodies and the nearest convenient host bodies – would be all those bodies in the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what their crimes are. We don't know who put them away. We really know nothing about them or how bad it could get mm-hmm. if we let them out. And the only thing that we know is keeping them where they are mm-hmm. is where they are, it is that planet. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would put the cones up for sure. I would take good notes. I would probably, I, I, I don't know, maybe get the word. Well, but here's the thing. If you get the word out, and, and if people show up, let's say, let's say uh, a Klingon ship flies sure. by. Well, no, know? Klingons and, are our friends now. Let's say Romulans. Well, no, I, I, not even that the Romulans are, are, or the Klingons are good guys. The point is the Klingons are big and tough. Mm. And I imagine those criminals who might be perfectly happy to take over Deanna's body and be able to you know, mastermind the takeover of a ship. If they've got a bunch of wharf bodies that they can take over and suddenly they're smart and dangerous and also tough and, mm-hmm. and can withstand a phaser hit or two, then we could be in trouble. You know, so I, I, I think I side with Picard on this. Uh, put them back, leave them where you found them and put up the cones. It is surprisingly cruel from Picard. And I'll be honest while this is well, I'm crossing over into all right. Let, let, let's not do that. Let's not okay. do that yet. Okay. There, there is a yeah. way that I think this episode. There are a couple of ways I think this episode could have been more interesting. That it could have actually gone into something a bit more philosophical. Mm-hmm. There is one one thing that kept coming up in this episode, though, and and that's why I'm sort of surprised that the only thing you bring up is the whole um, is the whole skepticism thing. There's mm-hmm. also a big mm-hmm. live free or die angle in this episode. I mean, oh, at, sure. the end, yeah, yeah. at the end, at the end, we I mean, like Picard is is marching them all to the one place where they can just be blown out into space because it's more important that those things be stopped than he live. And he even yeah. like he throws himself, you know, into the mix right. At, at, I guess it's Act Three, and he's like, "Let you let go of all the all the uh, injured people, and I'll be your prisoner." And Riker's like, "Whoa, wait a minute, whoa, that puts you in danger." And I love the fact that Picard's like, "Dude, I'm in danger." 
there's no separation here as far as he's concerned. Picard's not going to be hopping in a shuttle and taking off to make sure that he's safe. And he's not going to have a cadre of security people around him to make sure he's safe either. One of his crew is in trouble. Actually, okay, 15, let's say. But 15 of his crew are in trouble. Mm-hmm. So he's in trouble. And, and I mean, there's a lot said here. The skepticism thing, you're right, is sort of like the most interesting, I don't know, moral or philosophical thing that we can look at in this episode. But, I mean, you just get like a really good shot at leadership uh, in, in everything Picard does, you know, with the added bonus of, and there's no such thing as ghosts. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think that there is um, uh, clearly there's a big, big thread of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one. Mm-hmm. Um, Picard doesn't know that by taking them to the cargo hold, he is also taking people who will be hostages. So he assumes that he will go because he can lead them through. The decision to take more hostages happens after the fact, after he volunteers to do that. So he didn't necessarily know that Keiko and Worf would be there with him. But yeah, it it is a great example of leadership that, you know, Worf is more, uh, not Worf, uh, Picard is more concerned about the fact that the rest of the crew would be safe if he, along with those entities, can be blown out into space. Mm -hmm. Keiko is more interested in the idea that her baby will live mm-hmm. um, if it takes her being blown into space. And and Worf, you know, Worf, again, with, with such a great line uh, saying that it would be an honor to die protecting his ship, mm-hmm. you know, because he values the lives of everyone else so much higher than, than his seemingly insignificant sacrifice to, uh, to help them. So they, they all display that kind of leadership. They all display that kind of judgment. Maybe we're meant to believe that this is kind of one of those inherent Starfleet things of the future that, uh, uh, that, that we, are so, we are so bought into that message that, that we would gladly do that to protect others. With the disembodied criminals beamed off of the Enterprise, it is time to see what we can take from Power Play. It's the time now on the show where we talk about, um, well, the show, huh? (laughs) We talk about the messages, the morals, the meanings, the action, the adventure, the acting and see whether the whole thing stands the test of time. Uh, power play, John. Does power play hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, it's great fun. Mm-hmm. I, it's just all about the action and the mystery. Uh, Picard outsmarting the bad guys. And it's also the fun of seeing well-known characters acting out of character. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of wondered if this is... Uh, a sort of luxury that Next Gen has by going as long as it does compared to the original series. There are more opportunities to break the characters out of the molds that we have for them. You know, we got to do that a few times in TOS, uh, obviously Mirror Mirror and things like The Enemy Within. And you you have these moments, um, uh, this side of paradise, where you get to tweak the characters and just totally make them go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But it seems like we've gotten a lot more of that in Next Gen. And it's fun. It's great to see these really good actors doing new and different acting. Um, the episode is Die Hard in Space. 
Um, <laughs> it's also kind of like an alternate version of all our yesterdays. You know, instead of having the benevolent Sargon, uh, you've got just a bunch of horrible criminals <laughs> taking over uh, our crew's bodies. And um, I'm sorry, forgive me. Uh-huh. All our yesterdays, that's TOS. That's yep. the things that were like generation ship things, but got stuck on a planet or something. They 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 were in orbs. They were, they were the last remaining uh, uh, people from their civilization, mm-hmm. and then and supposedly supposedly after they borrow Kirk's and Spock's bodies for a little while, they will go into uh, robots. But uh, they're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, Sargon was going to do that. All right, but but, but uh, you know Spock got the bad one, and 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 he's a bad guy. You know, I'm thinking one day you and I should actually watch TOS. Oh, God, that would be great. <laughs> that would be so much fun. It's that been a be, few years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you know what? I love seeing Marina kick butt in this. Yeah. She's so good, and, and it's so awesome to see her be tough. I talked a few weeks ago about how I wanted to see her finish the job in beating up Jev. Mm. And, you know, but I, I felt like finally we got to see her with a bit more anger and edge and and toughness and rawness and that was great to watch um so to me yeah i you know i enjoyed watching this the first time just reacquainting myself with the episode and i love re-watching it each time in prep for this show so i think it definitely holds up now we can talk about whether or not it's a it's a consequential show mm-hmm. <laughs> but but as far as just an episode as far as entertainment as far as production value and acting i think all of those things fire how about you well it's interesting that you say we can talk about whether it's consequential because my note says it is a good show but inconsequential because it mm-hmm. is i mean it's mm-hmm. it like mm-hmm. i mean i may get nitpicky here because you know nit am i right yeah. <laughs> right uh, we're getting into a more mature storytelling is what we keep talking about with star trek uh, we, uh, mm-hmm. people say and that, this is the part they're really excited about right a type of storytelling where we're dealing with feelings and and things that happen to people you know character development yeah. things like that uh but we're still doing the wrap-up in 48 minutes so the entity that controlled Miles tried to force himself on Keiko, was certainly threatening with Keiko, used his knowledge of Keiko to get into her head. All right, now you two go home. All right? Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. I feel certain it'll be okay. And we know it's going to be okay because we see them both holding their baby at the end. Right. If we shadows have offended, <laughs> chillax, because next week it's still Miles and Keiko and they'll be arguing about socks. Um I think it actually, there are a couple of ways, and I don't, I'm sorry to do the whole rewrite thing, but I want mm-hmm. this episode to matter because this episode is really good. Hmm. This episode's a lot of fun, and this episode mm-hmm. is incredibly well acted. Uh, it is not, as I said before, it's not Troy that you can applaud in this episode because her character almost doesn't exist in this episode, but boy, Marina Sirtis, and you like seeing her kick butt. I like seeing her stand there toe to toe with Patrick Stewart. Yeah. No, that is exactly. not something her character ever gets to do, except for, Captain, you're too tired. Go home. Right. That's an order. That's like the toughest she gets with Picard to this point. And right. to see Marina Sirtis stand there with Patrick Stewart and say, no, you shut up. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, because almost nobody gets to do that mm-hmm. as far as like the regular actors on the show. Right. I thought it would have been interesting, actually, to have Miles fight the thing. Like, when he says, I gave that to you, I thought he was going to actually start to weaken. I thought he was maybe going to have some sort of turmoil between who he is and what he's being forced to do. And could he break out of that? And that leads to interesting philosophical ideas. But that didn't happen. Um, 
what I think would have been really interesting is if if they go ahead, let's say let's say Roe pushes the button, right? Yeah. And everybody gets knocked out. And Picard's like, we're going to leave you on the planet. And what if the thing's like, no, don't. What if there's a moral issue for the second half of the show where it's like, okay, so Captain's Log, we found these prisoners and we're going to take them back to prison, but it's been 500 years and we don't even know who left them here and they can't stay with us and they understand that, but they don't want to go back to the planet. I mean, because there was an option to just blast them into space. You joked about it earlier, actually. Oh, whoops, somebody accidentally hit a thing and now they're all dead. Who's to say they wouldn't want that? It's just a monster movie. It's honestly, it would be a great Halloween episode. It would be a fantastic Halloween episode. Because, it, but all they do in the end is they're like menacing. They're like, oh, you better not come back here. Really? Because it's a vacation spot. I was totally planning on coming back here. <laughs> I mean, I, I really wish there had actually been where we're doing so much with character, where we're doing so much with story. I really wish there had just been a tiny bit of, aside from the leading by example and aside from the skepticism thing i wish that anybody at any moment had had a moral sort of like wow was that right what we just did or Mm. is what we're Mm -hmm. about to do right um i kind of miss it for that now that said i enjoyed it every time i watched it as well i can't really complain except apparently i can because i just did (laughs) (laughs) talk to me about messages if you would sir were there any uh, well, you know, part of me just says, who cares? Okay. This is an action-adventure episode, so if we're racking our brains to come up with something deep and philosophical about it, we, we needn't worry. Now, if I had to dig and find something serious about it, mm-hmm. um, it's that Star Trek still takes a position that it has taken many times before and, and that I think is valid. It's something personally I, uh, I definitely respect that there are explanations in the natural world for things we don't understand. And, and we have to exhaust those things first before moving to the alternative. Um, Picard, like I said, he represents that journey of actually doing the investigative work to figure out what this is instead of just taking the answer like, ah, yeah, well, they're, they're ghosts. So, cause we said we're ghosts and we're done. So <laughs> believe what we say. Um, also, you know, remember kids, uh, crime does not pay. Yeah. You will just find yourself stranded in the polar region of some hellish planet. And you do not want that for 500 years or even five minutes. That's true. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, five minutes might be okay. If you know, your other option is 500 years. Well, yeah, 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 true. Um, what about you? Oh, just the stuff I said before, honestly. I mean, <laughs> uh, no, the mark of a great leader thing. I mean, because it really is. I mean, uh, Picard is just leader, just like fantastic leader here. It's not just strength of leadership. It's not just it's not just on, you know, wow, Patrick Stewart delivered that well. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. whole, yeah, of course, I'm going to put myself in harm's way because I'm already in harm's way because, you know, if one of my people is suffering, I'm suffering. There's a little Tom Jode. Yeah, there's a little Jesus. There's a little, you know, <laughs> all the big mm-hmm. heroes. Uh, maybe not so much Superman because he could have been hurt. Um, <laughs> th- that that was really the one message that was there for me. I, and again, I understand what you're saying about the skepticism. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's happening in Star Trek. It's happening in things. Well, I mean, okay with it even happening in Star Trek. It's happening with things that like have been ripped from their bodies. In fact, come to think of it. They say they've been floating there for 500 years. Something happened and they were ripped from their bodies. Maybe they were only supposed to be there for 10. Maybe this was a death sentence and now it's been 500 years. Mm. I mean, and so if you set up that improbability, 
I mean, it goes back to this side of paradise, honestly. All the things there were so improbable, but they worked. And so once you've told me, okay, these are the rules by which we're playing and they all work, then I got to say that what's happening there is absolutely perfect. And so once you tell me, okay, so this storm is so weird that you can pull somebody's essence, their ka, their ineffable being (laughs) from their body, well, then there's no reason it couldn't have been Schumer. Except, oh, it turns out it's not Schumer because these are going to be bad guys because our dead people stay dead when you kill them. But these other dead people, they actually live for 500 years because they're light. Okay. Right. Except they weren't light, but now they are. So, I mean, to me, honestly, even without the skepticism thing, it's, I mean, it's still, it's still a great episode as far as the leadership thing. And it's just, it's just a ripping good yarn. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. Go there to check out news about Roddenberry Entertainment, products from Roddenberry Entertainment, uh, and there's so much more, like the very good work that is being done by the Roddenberry Foundation. Again, Roddenberry.com is sort of your launching point to find out all of that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, ethics. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Too bad about the Essex. It would have been fun to see Starfleet officers from before the time of Kirk and Spock. Can you imagine? And transmission.